Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird podcast, exploring life one story at a time. Hello, friends. I'm Daniel Sherl. Today on the show, for more than 30 years, you've loved the incredible creations and stories that she's helped bring to life on the big screen. As a world-renowned makeup artist, she's worked on more than 40 feature films, including things like The Princess Bride, The Muppet Christmas Carol, The Fifth Element, Lincoln, and Ready Player One, just to name a few. And with directors like Mel Gibson, Brian De Palma, Cameron Crowe, Luc Besson, and of course, Steven Spielberg. She won the Academy Award for Best Makeup for her work on Braveheart and was nominated for a second Oscar for Saving Private Ryan. But makeup is just one of her life's passions. She's also an animal lover who raises her own group of furry friends and today, in addition to her continued work in Hollywood, volunteers her time serving as both a governor for the makeup and hairstylist branch as well as the vice president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. There, she helps with a slew of wonderful programs that we're probably going to talk about. And did I mention that she's just a fantastically nice human being? Please welcome my friend, the incredibly talented, gracious and kind Lois Burwell. Lois, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I'm quite thrilled by it, actually. Oh, well, it's, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, let's jump right in. You were born in the UK. Where exactly were you born and raised there? London. Um, in fact, an area quite close to Crouch End, which I think some people may have heard of, or perhaps even some of your listeners live in. It's North London. Is there a big difference between the different geographical areas of London, like North, South, etc.? Oh, yes. It can get quite heated, actually, whether you're north or south of the Thames. Ah, and how so? Like, what's the big debate? I don't know. It's it, it's one of those kind of anomalies. It's I'm trying to think how to describe it without seeming, you know, offensive in some shape or form. <laughs> but it, it, there's definitely this sort of sense with Londoners, whether you come from the east, the west, the north or the south. And the accents change as well. Is it a friendly rivalry, rivalry like a sports rivalry here in the US, you know? I think so, yes. I mean, yeah, it, it, it will be the equivalent of that. And it's one of those peculiarities. Everyone becomes a Londoner if there's someone from somewhere else. And yet when you're all together, it's I'm North, you're South. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Well, what was little Lois like when you were a child? That's a really interesting question and hard to be an observer of yourself. I was, you know, small, a slight child, um, blonde hair, like dancing, like painting and making things, great reader. And I, I think I was a quiet child. I think I was, uh, looking back on it, in comparison to, you know, other children. Are you an only child or you have siblings? Yeah, only child. And we lived in the house that was my grandmother's, with my grandmother. Mm. And what did your parents do? My dad was a, a household electrician and my mum was a telephonist, but she trained originally she left school when she was 12. They, the, my parents were older when they had me. They were in their mid-40s and because they thought they couldn't have children. And in fact, my mother went to have a hysterectomy, believe it or not. And that's when they found that she was pregnant with me. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of a bit extraordinary. And that's why I'm called Lois, actually. I'm named after the gynecologist who delivered me as a cesarean birth because... They wanted to, my parents decided that if I was a girl, I'd be called Jane. And if I was a boy, I'd be called Paul. But because it was so touch and go during the pregnancy um, and the gynecologist was so marvellous and everyone came through it, you know, intact, 
they decided when the registrar came round to ask what the gynaecologist, because everyone's referred as a specialist as Miss or Mister, so she was Miss Herter, and they didn't know what the L stood for, so they had to go and find her and ask, and that's why I'm called Lois. That's awesome. Hmm. Are your parents still with us or no? No, no, neither of them are sadly, but they're always with me. I mean, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. You, they're not physically with you anymore, but they're always with you. Did you travel when you guys were growing up? Well, when you were growing up, they were already grown. They were grown. They were very grown up. Um, yes, we, well, we didn't travel actually because the money was tight. I mean, I wouldn't say we were poor, you know, there was always food, but there wasn't always everything else. Were they considered working class? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And we would go, if we could afford it, on holiday for a week, maybe two weeks, to a seaside town. Or mm. may, once we, we actually ventured out and went to the Isle of Wight. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they were the kind of holidays. It was very sort of spade and bucket and making sandcastles. So there were no grand trips to China or Paris or things like that? No. The most exciting thing, actually, the outings we used to take... It was normally around my birthday, which is at Christmas time. So if it was possible, obviously financially, we would I would get to choose to go to see a play or a theatre, you know, go to the theatre in the West End. Were there any particular experiences growing up that made you want to work in makeup? Well, it would be actually a combination of all those things, because when it was raining and, and cold or bleak, you know, during the winter time and sometimes spring and sometimes actually the summer in the UK, <laughs> then what we'd do is go on the bus into the West End um, and go to the museums or an art gallery because they were free. Mm. So you could go in and, and wander around the National Gallery all day. So it's a combination of those things combined with going to theatre and actually attending a dance school, which, you know, just of an evening or on a Saturday... I loved being, it was the Iris Caldicott School of Dance in the in Crouch End and um, just a local dance school. So when we do performances, I started to want to make, if we were being a doll, for example, I remember one dance we did, we were, one, once we were a rainbow <laughs> and then another time we did Dance of the Dolls and of course I made everyone up to be the doll. So it was... I think it was a combination of those things. And did you have a particular form of dance that you liked more than others? Always liked ballet. Mm. Still to this day? Yes. That's cool. So do you ever go out to a ballet here in L.A.? And... I have done, yes. Yeah. Except it always feels more comfortable for me to do that in London. I don't know why. And it's one of those things. But whenever I go overseas with work, if it's possible, I tend to go to either a concert or to see the ballet, you know. Well, let's talk about your career for a minute. I'm curious, uh, what do you like most about doing makeup as an art form? Transforming. That's what I like. And it can be very subtle. I mean, it doesn't have to be into a creature, turning an actor or someone into a creature. It can be the character, whatever that happens to be, whether it's the right tone of lipstick or and just to change that person and help them visually become the character they're portraying that's what I, that's what i enjoy that's actually what i enjoy rather than make up you know as a contained in a box sort of art form in essence though you are quite like a, a classical painter that every single person is a canvas and you're creating some piece of art on them 
I hadn't actually really thought of it in that way. But yes, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But it's also how, see, it's more than that because a canvas is something that's flat. This is more, you have to observe what someone's mannerism is or how they speak, how their muscles work. It's actually examining them from the inside, how it affects the outside. I mean, if you know the person, you've worked on them many times, do you have the advantage of saying, oh, well, you know, John Doe here, I know what he's like, I know how he's going to kind of play this character or move. Does that ever affect how you do makeup or no? Not really, no. I, I think it becomes, I think when when it's a, a fresh face, a face you don't know, actually it's easier ah. in many ways because you don't have that interpersonal connection that kind of blinds you. You know, when, you, when, when you're living in a house and you walk past the furniture every day, you don't really see it. But if you go away on holiday and then you come back, you go, oh, my God, those covers need changing. It's, <laughs> it's that. So the more you know a face, the harder it is in some ways to reinvent it into something else, mm. you know. But, yes, I, I wouldn't say it's psychology. It's a sense of how someone is and then and you can work collaboratively on it i mean not in the technical format obviously but you get a sense that someone's going to hold their face in a particular way or have a certain expression or you know that it's a very shouty character so your emphasis might be on the teeth you know if it's going to be shouted. So it, it's that. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, putting it together. When you get hired to do a job, and we'll just make something up. Let's just say there's some big sci-fi project, whatever. From the moment you get the call, Lois, we'd love to have you on this movie, till the day that you're on set and you're applying, people are applying makeup to the actors. In general, how long is that process and how involved is the work before you're actually applying? Well, it really depends. It was how long's a piece of string because it can be two weeks. I mean, it can be a week, wow. believe it or not, on some projects because they get up and running so fast. Or it can be that you'll know what you're doing six months in advance or you get an inkling of, of what's, you know, if it happens, if it's greenlit, if it's, you know, if everything comes together, then you'll be on a project. But whatever it is, the minute it all begins with the script. That's what it begins with. So the minute you know the story and you're reading it in your mind, you start to see the characters. Obviously, it helps if casting is already in place. And normally the principles are cast um, by the time people speak to me. And then what you do is you start to, in, in my mind, I start to see those people that I know, the actors that have been cast in that character's role. So then you're then it starts to kind of take a shape. Mm. Then obviously you meet with the director and see if the ideas, and then I, I make mood boards. So I get either pictures of real characters that would work or, and it can be from anything. It can be from paintings or newspapers or magazines, or I tend not to use images from the internet. That That's, I might retrieve them from there, but I find that you'll get the same picture over and over and over again. Somehow, for me, it doesn't work as well. Let me put it that way, you know. So, um, but I make a mood board, so it's a physical thing to show to the director. And it can just have a bit of colour on it as well. Um, and then I get, I find out what, what's in their mind because you've got something tangible. Because if I turn around and say to you, I, can, I, can, I see this creature being blue, well... 
I could be thinking of a tone of blue that you're not. So yeah, yeah, sure. The more you hone down in that way, you know where you are, and and you can stand a, a greater chance of actually coming up with the with the look that will make the director and everyone else jolly rather than miserable. Are there usually several rounds of meetings between you and the director to figure out what tone of blue metaphorically you're going to use? There will be over a period of time, normally with a test, but it depends on the director and some are more engaged with that than others. So others will just say, show me when you're ready and that's it. So Interesting. I will then go and have a chat with the production designer. So I know what the color palettes are and and the sense of the drawings, they're normally on it well before I'd be employed. What the sets would look like, what the colour palettes are. And then I'd talk to the cinematographer and see actually what, what camera's being used. Um, and if it is film, which it isn't 90% of the time now, but it can be, or it used to be all the time, obviously. You'd find out what stock, what lab, are they doing anything like a beach bypass or anything, anything that's expected to be done in post? Is there, you know, all those kind of things. Um, so that's what I do. And then I would speak to the costume designer. So then you can look at their drawings and their ideas and where, so you can work together and make a cohesive character rather than you're all trying to do your own version of the film. Yeah. I mean, that actually is ultimately it. You don't want to be on a film where everyone's doing their own version of it. <laughs> you want to be able to work as a team to tell the one story. Well, and something, I'm curious, like something like The Fifth Element, which you worked on, yeah. which is such an amazing, just incredible film. And the color palettes are extraordinary and the costumes are extraordinary. The makeup is extraordinary. All of it is such a visual feast for the eyes, right? So with something like that, I assume there were these multiple meetings where all those different departments are coming together to have this singular vision. Is that correct? We didn't actually meet as a group that much, funnily enough. But Luc Besson um, is so, so visual and absolutely had precise and exact knowledge of what he wanted and yet wouldn't guide you in it until you did it. So... It, there was that was an unusual film to work on because literally he didn't want to plan in advance. So the art departments would sort of be working together and then present to him, say the the air the flight attendants. So I would be doing that makeup. They would be in that outfit, that costume, the day before we shot them. So if there was going to be a change, it had to happen that night. Wow. So it was quite challenging like that. But I have to say, JPG, Jean-Paul Gaultier, was fantastic. He was absolutely collaborative, a real hard worker, and wouldn't think twice about you know getting on his hands and knees and pinning up a, a frock or had a box of what I would call, you know, tat, so kind of tatty bits of maybe lace or a piece of material, and you just grab it, crumple it, and pin it on, and it would just transform something. I mean, really skillful. And you'd think that he would be grand, and he wasn't grand at all. Huh. He was really a super person to work with. That's cool. Well, you mentioned the word challenging. I'm curious, what is, in your opinion, the most challenging aspect of being a makeup artist? Well... I know this might sound rather odd, but I think it's the paperwork. <laughs> it's the paperwork and the administration and the budget. They're the biggest challenges. That's really funny. Because 
the budget and balancing it because everyone has, you know, I have an idea of what I, I would like, but what I like and what I need aren't necessarily in the same, <laughs> in the same zone. And there's never enough money. I mean, it doesn't matter whatever you, whatever you work on and it can be big budget or small. I've never had someone say to me from production, just tell us what you need and you can have it. <laughs> There's always a negotiation over puffs, over sponges, over do you really need all those wet ones? You know, I mean, it's, it's always that. Do you really need you know, 15 people to do a crowd of 400? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that. That's the biggest challenge. What was your first professional job as a makeup artist? When we say professional... Let me qualify that. I think that that will come under being paid. Sure, yes, okay. Rather than doing it for free. <laughs> um, and that would have been a, a rock video with Jean-Michel Jarre. Were you in England then? Yeah. So you started your career in the UK? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Mm. And how long were you in the UK working in makeup before you transitioned to Hollywood? Oh, my Lord. That's a good question. I would uh, probably a hideously long time. Um over 20 years, actually. So today, if you had to choose, would you prefer actually applying makeup to actors or running a department as like a department head on set? It's the same thing. That's one and the same job. I, I don't know how other people work. I mean, you know, out of fairness, everyone has their own kind of, you know, way of doing things. But I would, I, there, are, there are three answers really to that question. One is, to me, it's one and the same thing. I can't ever imagine standing and pointing and and having someone else do the work and i wouldn't ask anyone to do something i'm not prepared to do and interestingly enough there was a film i did in fact it was the last samurai and we were in new zealand and it was really international team which i was thrilled by i mean they came from all over the world so it was great but there was someone who and i work in the crowd room as well i don't just do the actors i mean obviously if the actors are you know in the chair then i can't at the same time as the crowd call i can't be in the crowd room right right um but i always like to be in the crowd room when i can and then leave and go and do the principal cast um if it's an early enough call but there was someone and i overheard it and it was day one and we had 500 japanese young men um, who were playing both the Imperial Army and the Samurais, you know, obviously depending on what day, or sometimes they'd be divided 250 and 250, that kind of thing. And in New Zealand, there's a hole in the ozone layer, and the burn time at that, at that point was seven minutes. And the Samurai, some of them, had shaved heads. So you can see that there's going to be a problem. So obviously sunscreen was vital. Yeah. And I'd asked two people to start off you know, as they were coming in, putting the sunscreen on before they come in and sit in the chair. Because I like to work it as a sausage factory. So you go in one end raw and you come out cooked and done and ready <laughs> at the other. And then at the end of the day, you do the reverse. Right. So, and I heard someone say, I'm a makeup artist. I don't do sunscreen. So that first morning, there weren't any principals coming in for a long time. I stood there and worked the entire crowd call, only putting on sunblock. Oh, cool. And no one ever challenged anything they were asked to do after that because from the very beginning, 
you don't ask someone to do something you're not prepared to. You've got to lead from the front. Leading by example. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, you've worked on some of the most famous movies in cinema history, including The Princess Bride, Braveheart. We mentioned The Fifth Element. Do you have a favorite film or a favorite makeup design that you've done? And not necessarily, I want, I want to quantify that, not for the film itself, actually, for the purely for the makeup aspect. Oh, well, I think the film that I was happiest with the work because... I'm never happy with the work. I'm happy with other people's work, but not with my own. Huh. In the fullness of time, I can look back and go, do you know what? That's not, not bad. That's, that was almost quite good. I quite like that. <laughs> um, is that a lowest trait or is that a British trait? Oh, I think, I don't know. I think it's a me trait. I mean, it's just, okay. you know, it's written through me like Brighton Rock. I just can't change that. But I would, I would say that the film that I was happiest with and have come closest to saying, yes, yeah it was stringless you can't see where the strings were would be lincoln mm. that would be the one because that was a massive challenge and the scale of the film um and what we were you know what what was required to be to be done and in the time that it, it that we were given to do the work it was yeah i think i was happiest with that it took a lot and there's one memory I have, which when we were in the, um, in the house, and in fact, uh, Daniel wasn't working that day. Mr. Lincoln wasn't working. <laughs> but just to get the House of Representatives ready uh, and to look right, because half the cast had to actually resemble real, you know, historical characters. And they were sitting spread out with extras sitting by the side of them, who, of course, are going to be seen as if they're principals when you go in on one of the characters. So it was a massive thing to do. And I walked in and they were just starting to rehearse. And when everyone was gathered, I just started to cry because they looked right. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> wonderful and such a relief. That's really cool. So yeah. What is it like to win an Oscar? Well, rather extraordinary, actually. I, it wasn't something that I'd ever really thought about because it was something that happened to other people and I actually can say that about most of my life to be perfectly honest <laughs> that it's a it, it's just it was just peculiar it was peculiar and, and odd marvelous exciting sort of nerve-wracking and lovely I it, it I, I don't really I still don't understand fully how it came about <laughs> <laughs> even though now I do you know work with the Academy and those things. It, it's now, where do you keep your Academy Award? On a shelf by the side of my husband's two Academy Awards. Ah, that's cool. Yes, you're a multi-Oscar multi house. Yeah. And for those who don't know, you can, if you want to talk about him, he's an award-winning cinematographer. Yes, John Toll. And we met on Braveheart, and we both won for Braveheart. Oh, see, that's what a romantic story. Hmm. You have an Academy Award-winning love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, did he ask you out or did you ask him? I'm trying to remember, actually. No, I, th I think what happened was, I think, well, it wasn't that, it wasn't, it wasn't a question of asking out because, well, except he did ask me to go for a drink. So, yes, he did. Ask wait, me. wait, please, please tell me that he walked up to you and he quoted Mel Gibson and said, Lois, you know, every man dies, but not every man lives. Will you have coffee with me? <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, but no, that's not John. So, <laughs> yeah, no. No, what happened was, do you fancy a drink? Because we, we, what we do is we go to dailies. We go to rushes at the end of the, of the day. And when you start off in a film, 
people don't do that now. But when you start off in a film, you know, everyone's there at dailies, absolutely everyone. And then it kind of peters down as the hours get longer of the shooting day. <laughs> and you're farther in, unless there's something that someone's worried about or they feel they want to see something for a technical reason. You know, it just dwindles down. Well, I always go because, you know, makeup can be slightly changed every day. You can see what's working and adapt and kind of change it because the face isn't in comparison to the face on the same shot. So you, you're, it's something that's fluid. It's not set in stone. So I always go and I go every day if I can. And um, of course it was uh, by the time we were, I think three weeks in Scotland um, at the beginning of the shoot, by the third week, you know, there were four of us sitting <laughs> the dailies rather than 25. So it's you, John, Mel, and who? Well, actually, sometimes the producers, sometimes one of the producers, and always um, Steve Rosenblum, the editor. That's cool. So, yeah, that was us. That, that was the little merry band. And so we got to know each other then, because on a film set, I mean, I'm, I'm not standing there chatting to the cinematographer, you're there working. So yeah. it, was, it was then that we started to know each other. And of course we were on location. So on a Saturday night, you know, you're in Fort William, there's not a thousand places you can go to. We don't all have cars, you know, all those things. And you're, so you end up in the same Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> or there was a disco at the hotel where I was staying which was a mountaineers because everyone went there to climb Ben Nevis. And it was, uh, it was an extraordinary place. And in fact, how we got together was over a fight that broke out in the hotel between construction. <laughs> there was the local construction team and there was another film that was, that was going to go there, um, Rob Roy, and their construction and the locals and... Rob Roy's construction started a fight. It was a Saturday night. Huh. And it was a massive fight. I mean, it was a fight where a body threw, flew in the air above your head and hit the wall. It, it was wow. literally a fight as you'd see in a wild the old West, West gunsling. Film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so John rescued you and got you out of there to safety? He did. And it was then love at first save. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I suppose it's almost romantic in a way. It's pretty romantic. That's got, you're in oh, Scotland. Yeah. He saves you from a bar fight. Yeah. <clears throat> you could have been, you could have been hit by a stray haggis. You never know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, how long have you guys been together now? Well, good question. Since that film, so ninety four. Since ninety four. Twenty six years. And then we've been married for twenty two years. This. November. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. How has makeup changed since when you first started till today, the kind of technological aspect of it? Oh, it's constantly changing. I mean, there are some basics that seem to remain the same, although the products become more advanced. I assume they're safer today than they've ever been before as well. Oh, God, yes. I mean, I remember an old makeup man, God love him, when I first started working said to me, oh, you know the cure for a black eye, don't you? Opium powder. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, white lead. That was the other one. Oh, and my I went, God. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah. No, of course, yes. It's, it's far safer now than it was. Do you feel like the technological side of makeup keeps pace with the technological advances in camera? You know, the more HD, we're, we're getting into 8K now uh, for film. Does makeup keep pace with that? Yes, I, it does. To, I mean, it actually, it's like anything, isn't it? A chef 
in a five-star restaurant has exactly the same ingredients as someone at the local chippy. So it depends on what you do with it. It's far more important than what it actually is. Well, you say that, but what about like maybe some guy at a chip shop is just getting his stuff from a random kind of crappy place. Yeah. But then a, a chef is getting That's true. local Good produce. Local, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. I was wrong on that. Um, it's more like one hand washes the other, hmm. you know. So technology and great products are fabulous. But then the other part of it is you have to know how to use it. Yes. And you have to know the chemical format. The, the thing that I, I would really encourage any would-be makeup artist out there listening to do is to actually really know what is in the makeup you're using and what the chemical formats are so you know how to safely remove it or how to combine things because you can turn something that's perfectly safe to you <laughs> to use in a certain way into something that is unsafe by not knowing the chemical format. So a little bit of chemistry goes into what you do. Yeah, just, I mean, that's why I suppose I was comparing it to being a chef or a cook because cooking is chemistry too. Yeah, and if you cut that, whatever that one fish is, I forget, a blowfish or whatever, if you cut the one wrong part, you can kill somebody. Exactly. You know? Well, you mentioned travel earlier, and I'm curious, how much has traveling been a part of your career now? You've been all over the world for what you do. Yeah. Is this is it commonplace? Is, is most of the work you do international? Yes, actually. I mean, I think that's what you, you sort of get known for, yes. And it's part of being a film crew. What are some of your favorite places you've been in the world? Well, I love New Zealand. I really did love New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, me too. And I love yeah. Japan. I found Japan very restful, actually, and a beautiful country. Hmm. But yes, I adore New Zealand. And there are some places I've never been. And I, as I don't really go on holiday, because when you work away, your holidays when you're at home. Yeah. So, but there are some places I'd like to have gone to that I never have. Like where? Well, I'd really like to go to South Africa and Botswana. Is there a particular reason? Well, I've always been drawn to Africa. I had a lot of African friends at school. And so I've always wanted to go and see their homeland. Mm. Um, and the animals, actually, perfectly honest. Yeah. That's, that's really what would draw me, the culture and the animals. As a photographer, I also have always longed to go to Africa and take my cameras and my drone and just spend two or three months going around the whole area and kind of top to bottom, see the whole country. I'd love to start in the South and then do a whole, maybe even like a year of making my way up the continent and end up in Morocco or Egypt and then, you know, just see Africa, you know. That would be wonderful. Yeah. And I don't think people realize how big Africa actually is. Yeah. You know, it's it's just massively huge. So I'm curious, when it comes to your career, did you ever consider quitting? Oh, yeah. There have been times. When I first started, and actually after I was established, it, the film industry goes seem, seems in the UK to go through, or it did then, go through seven-year cycles. So it's either famine or feast. And it was really hard, you know, being freelance and having precarious uh, income was really... It, challenging yeah and then there were times when you just get disillusioned I mean I, I just with the whole kind of you know you're never at home you're always away the hours are hard and that kind of thing so yes I've considered it I've never done it I've, I've always been you know more than happy jolly and thrilled to get back in the saddle again but I have, <laughs> I have, I've thought about it 
Um, and I definitely have thought about it when I've been on a film because, you know, when, you're, when, when you are tired, I mean, I can't emphasise the hours you work. Mm. It's really long days. So makeup artists' regular day is 14 hours. I mean, that's the shortest day you ever do. So it's upwards from there. Um, but, but when you're tired or you're frustrated and, you know, you're freezing cold, you're on a hillside, people tend not to behave well when they're under stress and pressure. So there can be, you know, a lot of snapping. Um, when, you, when you get days like that, it's not like that every day, but when you get days like that, you just think, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I standing on this hillside <laughs> worried about someone's eyeliner? There's got to be something more in life. <laughs> in times like that, I've got to be honest. But, and then in the next moment, you know, the, everything comes together. You see something. It's the performance. It's the camera move. It's how they look, what they're wearing, the feeling, the sense of achievement of that group project. There's nothing better in the world. When you have to design a specific look for a film, what kind of preparation do you have to do with like research and test runs and things? I know we touched on it a little bit, but is there a specific process for you? Yes. Yeah, there is. I, I like to do masses of research. And normally that's, you know, the unpaid part of the job because I like to, you know, you can never, you can never, when you're shooting, you can never be doing preparation in the same way as when you're not shooting. Mm. So it's better to have the preparation up front. And I love to do research. I like to, if it's based on a, a real character, find out who that character was in a separate way from just the look of them. Well, let's use Lincoln as an example. What kind yeah. of preparation did you do for Lincoln? I think I probably could have answered, you know, an A-level questionnaire on Lincoln <laughs> <laughs> and the period. Um, basically just read everything I possibly could. And how long of it, was it several months of research or how long was the period of time? Lincoln is a very kind of, it was really nine years. Hmm. And I know that sounds odd, but the first time, first incarnation of Lincoln, it was a very different script. Um, obviously it had Lincoln in it, but it was far more battley. And that's when I was first asked to do it. So I started to read about Lincoln and then did a makeup test on a different actor than um, Daniel. And then that didn't happen. So then the script was rewritten. And so it went through about four or five incarnations before the actual Lincoln film. Wow, I didn't know that. Mm. So in a way, it was like nine years of research. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say on an average movie, if you had to say an average, how much time do you spend on research? I would say if I have enough time and I'm given the heads up well in advance, I would like to spend at least a month researching. And of course, some things you can't research. For example, you were talking about The Fifth Element. I, I always think that sci-fi or anything futuristic is the hardest thing to do because there is no reference. Mm. Well, besides the litany of stuff that's been done before, but I see what you're saying. You know, yeah. you're creating a whole new universe, essentially. Yeah. Do you try to, if you're doing something futuristic, do you try to take things that exist in today's world and conceptualize what might this look like in the future? Or do you just try to invent your own world? Combination of those. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ever going to be a fashion for people to have, you know, four eyebrows, for example. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's that. If I were drawing on something like that, then I think for other species, 
anything underwater here on this planet is a great source of inspiration. What's funny about that, about, you know, art imitating life and vice versa and truth being stranger than fiction. I see sometimes some of the stuff that they're pulling up from the deep ocean and it's crazier and looks weirder than anything I've actually seen in science fiction. So it's, it's really bizarre. Well, I'm curious between prosthetics and wounds and creature stuff and beauty makeup, what do you think is your strongest area? I think I'm a basic all rounder. That's how I'd describe myself rather than something particular. But I think I lean towards desiring to make things look real, whatever it is. That's, that's, that's what I'm always aiming at. And I know that sounds odd, but rather than when you look at something and it somehow mm, doesn't ring true to the eye, huh. I always want it to, to be completely believable so that someone in the audience doesn't actually notice it. Yeah. They just believe it and get on with the story. That's what I want to do. That's a that's a very old uh, adage that I really like, which is when you've really done your job, no one will notice. Yeah, that's right. You were on Face Off as a judge. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that, it, it was it was tremendous fun. Yeah, I was gonna say, what was it like to see all these young special effects and makeup people doing their doing their stuff? I actually watched you on the show. It was great. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, it was it was lovely. I mean, I didn't actually get to know them as people until afterwards, mm. which was the extraordinary thing because they're, they're kept separate from us. So you're just literally judging the work, but you get a sense of someone, you know, when they're discussing their work or presenting it to you, but you don't really know what their stories are or where they come from or their background or anything else until afterwards. So that was fascinating. And was it nice for you to to go there and just be someone who's not actually having to do any of the makeup? You're just observing and giving opinions and stuff like that. Was that a cool experience? Oh, God, it was tremendous. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and I kept thinking, thank God I don't have to do that. <laughs> you know, oh, no, that would have been a nightmare. No, not good That's with funny. that kind of pressure. Oof, no. But, yeah, no, it was really terrific. And such lovely people. Everyone was just so nice. It was That's cool. it was really a lovely experience. I have to give a big shout out to Jolene, my better half, because she wanted me to ask you this question. Okay. Uh, what did a day look like on Muppet Christmas Carol compared to a day on Lincoln? Well, one had much more laugh about it. <laughs> it, was, it was good. Well, I mean, that... That was an extraordinary film, Muppet Christmas Carol. I just loved it. And if someone asked me what my favourite film to work on as a work experience was, I'd always say that film, because you laughed. You laughed from the moment you got there until you went home. Your face <laughs> would ache. I mean, and rushes were held at, were shown at, um, screened at lunchtime. And... The theatre in Shepparton was absolutely packed. People were literally sitting on the steps because you have all those puppeteers and they all want to see their performance, you know, so they can make adjustments and all those things. But the outtakes were cripplingly funny. It was, <laughs> And the great thing is that, so that, oh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but... The, well, I think it's well beyond spoiler time now. I mean, the movie's been out for quite some time, so it's okay. Oh, no, not about the story, but about how they shoot it because they, sh they shoot it on a rostrum so that the puppeteers are actually underneath looking at a monitor with their right, hands up right. like that, right? so up in the air, uh, in the character. So, of course, you'd be on the, on the set with the people, with the actors who are actually walking about on top, above. Like Michael, Michael Caine yeah, and Michael all those guys, Caine. yeah. Um, and 
so we'd be walking about above their heads. So of course they could see us, but we couldn't see them. So you'd be standing there and there'd be a tap on your shoulder. And it was the saxophonist from the Muppets who suddenly just, you know, kissed me. You know, just kind of bounced on your face. Or they'd, they'd tap you on the shoulder and there'd be an egg put in your makeup bag. You know, I mean, they're just, it was, it was just terrific. It really was. That's I mean, I know it, it was the best fun I think I've ever had on the film set on a daily basis. And Michael, of course, is a terrible giggler. Um, Sir Michael Caine is just a real giggler. And of course, that was that added to it as well, because he's such a lovely bloke. And I actually did get to make up Kermit. Really? Claim to fame. There's a children's television programme for your your British listeners will know of this because it's you know famous in the UK. There was a children's programme called Blue Peter. And it started when I was a child. Um, and you would be able to do either you know, send in a drawing or do something for a local charity or something like that, or make something, collect milk bottle tops to, to give to, hmm. to save up for a guide dog, you know, for the blind, that kind of thing. So, and everyone wanted a Blue Peter badge and you could only get them for some kind of merit. And it so happened on the Muppet Christmas Carol that Blue Peter was still going then and they came and they wanted to interview the Muppets. So the idea was that they'd knock at the door, at the makeup door, had a little star on it that I had to cut out, you know, of yeah. silver paper, because we don't have those on doors, obviously. Um, but, you know, put it on there, knocked at the door. And when they came in with the camera, there I was making up Kermit in the chair. So I had all <laughs> the greens out on the, on the makeup place. And for it, I was given a Blue Peter badge. Oh, how awesome. All those years later, I was so thrilled. I can't tell you how thrilled I was. And then I went to do make after lunch checks on Michael. And he went, where'd you get that badge? I said, Oh, I got it for making up Kermit. And you said, well, where's mine? I did an interview. They never gave me one. I hope today that that badge is sitting next to your Academy Award. Absolutely. I'm curious, how do you decide what jobs you say yes to and, and what would make you turn down a job? Well, it depends on when the job was offered. Well, today. Oh, today, rather than in the beginning. Because in the beginning, you're just grateful for a job. And actually now, with COVID, I'd be grateful for a job. But... <laughs> It speaks to you. I mean, there has to be something in it for you. It can't just be the money. I mean, it really can't be just the money um, unless there's, you know, a wolf knocking at the door and you're about to be thrown out your home. I mean, but then there is something in it for you. But because the hours are too long, the work is actually hard um, a lot of the time. So with me, it's the story or the people. It's either a group of people I love to be with in the creative process, mm. or it's a story that speaks to me. You mentioned COVID uh, a minute ago. How has that obviously affected the industry from, from your perspective? Oh, dramatically. I mean, absolutely dramatically. I don't know how, you know, we were talking earlier about working in the crowd room. What crowd will there be and when? And your own personal prediction, how long do you think it'll be before Hollywood can find a way to get back to full-on production? To full-on production, I think it's going to be cost-based, to be honest, because until there's absolutely a, a vaccine, to put in the PPE that's needed costs a fortune mm -hmm. unless you have a COVID-friendly story. 
you know, two people on one location with a minimum crew. And do you think that is going to affect storytelling now for the next couple of years, that we're going to see a dramatic drop in television and film and other and internet media where there's just not going to be a lot of people in the scenes? I can foresee that, yes. But then there are some places that are doing really well, you know, and therefore, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. And that's that's the that's the kind of unbalancing, unnerving nature of this. Mm. There are there are no certainties. I mean, we all know theoretically that in life there is no such thing as a certainty sure. because you don't know what's going to happen the next moment. You just assume and presume that where you'll be and how life will be the next day when you after, when you wake up and you've gone to bed, you know that you assume that you will wake up for a start. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no guarantee of that ever happening. And now we're in a place where we're forced to recognize that I don't know element. Yeah, it's scary. But human beings have a, a real gift for coming out of situations like that with, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, I think human beings have a real perseverance and I think they have a real tenacity for, for surviving things like this. And I'm not saying there's not always collateral damage, but I think that the fear of that and the shift and the change will bring about incredible innovation. And I, th I'm very positive person. So I, I look, I look towards, I can't wait to see all the cool stuff we come up with because of all this, you know? Yes. I mean, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. In the face of adversity, people, you will actually know who's a, who's a good egg and who isn't, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. adversity Absolutely. does that. And, and adversity within our own lives, you know, is a, a challenge, a real challenge within our own lives. If you, when you go through, I mean, there is, I know there are times in my life as we've spoken before, but there are times in my life where, I wouldn't wish what happened to me on my worst enemy. I mean, literally, I wouldn't have done. But I know I, w I came out of it improved by that experience, mm -hmm. at least in a sort of sense of understanding and being able to mirror back, you know, you can survive this to someone who's actually going through it. So yeah. I'm, I'm quite hopeful. I'm quite hopeful that this whole experience, I mean, already it's made people think about the environment far more seriously mm -hmm. and what life is really about. I mean, a lot of the kind of ephemeral things have fallen to one side. I'm curious if you've ever considered being an actor yourself. God, no. <laughs> Not for a nanosecond. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> oh, I, I, just everything about it. People looking at you. I mean, I just, <laughs> it's that. It's being watched. It's also being other people. I, I struggle enough just being myself, let alone being anybody else. I don't know how they do it. Do you ever get nervous on any of the jobs you work on? Oh, always. Hmm. Absolutely always. I've never been on a single job where I haven't thought the night before I begin, I'm going to get fired. I won't make it through the first week. I know they're just going to see that I shouldn't be trusted to paint living room walls, let alone a face. <laughs> Absolutely. And the really weird thing is the more you've done it, the longer you've been doing it, the more frightened you are because yeah. you have more to lose somehow. And it's like, well, I got away with it all this time. It's the law of average. The, <laughs> this next job, they're going to discover it for certain. They're going to see I'm, yeah. I'm a total fake. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I, I, as I've gotten on in my careers and stuff, I feel the same way that I think 
and I'm hoping that people that are listening to this who are starting out in their careers and, and worry about those things, I want them to know that there's no such thing as someone who's so advanced in their career that they never get nervous, they have it all figured out, they just know everything. That if they if they give that illusion or they say that, they're just full of it because the reality is that's just a part of the process no matter how many times you do it. I think I think a real, like a sports figure, if a uh, football player, let's say, if he's been in, in the career for 10 years and he acts like, oh, I've got this, if he told the truth, he probably still gets nervous right before he goes on the field every time. Absolutely. You know? I mean, and, and, and I don't, I don't actually trust people who would have that kind of bravado to believe that, or that kind of ego. That there, there's something, there's something quite off-putting about that. I mean, you know, yes, one should inspire confidence. I mean, I'm not going to be terrified, you know, in front of my team. You're all going to hold hands together and move forward, you know as a team and I will be strong. I mean, you know, but yeah, no, I, everyone I know from the biggest directors to the you know biggest film star, they're nervous yeah. and think, Oh my Lord, what am I doing there? Why? <laughs> With me, there's kind of a beforehand nervousness. And then once I'm in the thing yeah. and I'm, and I'm doing it, I'm good to go, you know? Yeah. And that is, I think that's a, a real luxury of experience is that, you know, I might be nervous before the game starts metaphorically, but once I'm in the game, I'm, I'm jamming. Absolutely. You know? No, that's absolutely yeah. right. And by the, by, you know, lunchtime on the first day, you're solid. Would you say that there's been any kind of key to your success? That's a really interesting question. I don't actually know. Hmm. That's, that's, it's, it's a difficult one to answer because why well, suppose people like what I do? I mean, I think that's the key to it. And, I, and probably I'm all right to work with. I imagine people in the business, well, I know people in the business that have worked with you and rave about how kind you are. So I think that's a big factor too, is there's a very old quote that says, uh, be interesting or interested and don't be a dick. Yeah, there you know? you go. yeah exactly no and i genuinely i do find other people more interesting than i find myself um i mean that's just that's just absolutely a naked truth and kindness you, you mentioned in kindness you know there are certain things that are really underrated and kindness is one of them i agree it's not obligatory and it's somehow almost seen as a, a as a failing you know, yeah. which I find remarkable. I agree, actually. And, and I think we're going to talk about loss here a little bit down the road. But that, if I forget, remind me because the kindness thing plays into it. So, yeah. But I, I wanted to ask before I get off the career stuff, if you didn't work in makeup, what do you think you would have done with your life so far? Oh, that's a really tricky question. Um, well, actually, if I didn't do makeup, I think I would have liked to have done producing, actually, mm. but be a creative producer. Because I, I do know that that is one of my strengths, working out how something, how you fit all those pieces together and how you bring something about. And the more impossible it seems to be, the more you lock down how to achieve it. So I think I would have liked to have done that. But if I wasn't in the film world at all, actually, I think I'd like to have either had a garden centre or not a florist but something to do with plants. Like a nursery? Yeah, a nursery. Mm, cool. Uh, while we're still on career stuff, you are the vice president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and you're a governor. What is it like to work for the Academy, and what are the kinds of things that you do there? Well, And I, wanna, I also want to say, sorry, yeah. that it's important, because I didn't know this until we talked earlier, that all the work you do at the Academy is volunteer-based. It's not paid. Oh, yes, no, none of it's paid. Obviously, the staff are paid. The, the staff that are there, and that's their careers. 
but yes, I, just as a as any member of the academy, when you become a member, you can always be engaged and involved either at branch meetings or opt in to um, help with the student awards, the gold program, which encourages young people and creates a pipeline for them to come into the industry mm. in, in multiple ways. Because don't forget, it's uh, the academy is also arts and sciences. Right. So, right. you know, it is, it is across the board. Um, and yes, well, what I do is do all those kinds of things, you know, help with <laughs> help with the student awards, judge those. Um, and what kind of programs does the Academy offer for like outreach to the arts community and things like that? Oh, well, there are always either now it's obviously primarily online. But if you go to Oscars.org, you'll see that there are multiple options and programs that the public can see as well. There are interviews um, either on specific films and projects or there are lots of um, restoration of films there are a huge amount of things actually and the education and outreach it means going to colleges talking to school children lecturing at, at sort of you know either lecturing or participating in doing little film mm. modules you know that kind of thing. that's cool yeah no i mean the academy does a huge amount of things it's not just one night it's a not year. just the yeah, not yeah. just the gold bald man though obviously that's the brand <laughs> but it but it really the other 364 days we're out there you know literally preserving and honoring the past acknowledging filmmakers whether they're student filmmakers or international filmmakers mm. in the present and creating a path for the future, for future filmmakers. I mean, we take that very seriously. Are there any career ambitions you have yet to achieve or have you already achieved everything you wanted to in makeup? Mm, golly. Um, oh, no, there are so many things I'd like to do. So many things. I, I, I really want to be able to, to say that there's a film that I've worked on that I'm 100% happy with my work. That's, that's actually the ambition. I mean, whether anyone, and this is the thing, I know that there's always the thought about you've won this award or you've been nominated for that. All of that actually on the inside of me is nice, but immaterial. Because if I could achieve being happy with my work and I'm content with it, and I know I've done a good job to myself, no one can give that to you. No one can take it away. Hmm. And it's actually the most rewarding experience. Do you think a true artist is ever 100% satisfied, though? No. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's an unachievable goal, unattainable goal, right? Yeah. But but I think we can get to 99.9. We can get to 99.9. And the thing is, there's always something exciting, isn't it? It's exciting. You know, even when you work with the same team, the story's different and the actors are different. Or even if some of the actors are the same... The crew's not exactly the same. So there's always something engaging and new. And I don't actually like having goals because a goal in a way always feels like a bit of a death to me. You know, you've, you've reached it, you've achieved it, and then mm. it's gone. So I just think of it as kind of gathering as you go. Is there diversity in makeup? There is now, but it's not enough. It needs more. And we need a pipeline of people being trained from diverse backgrounds in order to create that for the future. So passing the baton on and sharing knowledge, I really do think is a, a way of becoming 
immortal, actually, to be perfectly honest. Mm. It's a way of safeguarding the future. Yeah, that's cool. When I first started, actually, there in film, not in television, because the BBC was predominantly, in fact, almost ex exclusively female makeup artists. But in film, that was not the case. It was a very male, it was the male makeup man. Huh. So, and to do some of the films I did, even, you know, in the, in the 90s, there was a question mark at one point over um, a film I was going to do and didn't end up heading the department, but it was a, a, it was a battle-y film. And there was a doubt, because I was a woman, whether I could do a battle film. And then, of course, you know, Stephen asked me to do Saving Private Ryan, and that wasn't even questioned. Hmm. And then, then, for some unknown reason, all I, all I was asked to do was a whole slew of war films. And, in fact, there was one director who said... I don't know if my film's going to go, but I wanted to meet you because you're the queen of war. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the diversity, there, there's always been a sort of an element of it. In the arts, there always has been. Yeah. But it needs to be improved. What's it like to work for Steven Spielberg? Fabulous. Uh, he's really, he's a nice bloke. I mean, he's not always Mr. Nice on a set when you're at work because... Well, that's any director. The pressure of it all, that's anybody, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's the truth of it. But yes, he's wonderful and can be incredibly kind as well, talking of kindness. Yeah, I mean, he was absolutely fabulous when my dad visited on Saving Private Ryan. Stephen is wonderful with old people and children. Absolutely sensational. And, you know, my dad, it was a rainy day and it was for the flyover at the end of Ramel because dad didn't want to come to visit, although... I wanted him to, to come to Wexford because we were, that's where we did in Ireland, that's where we did the D-Day landings and everything. But he couldn't because he, he landed um, on D-Day on the British beach, mm. so, and he just couldn't face it, actually. So he came at the, you know, the flyover at the end, and Stephen made certain that his chair was right by the side of his. And that just came about. And Janusz, actually, Janusz Kaminski, cinematographer, said, oh, you're Mr. Burwell, because I'd just snuck Dad in, because we were told that we couldn't have any visitors, and Tom Hanks insisted that my dad could visit the set because he actually fought in World War II and did, you know, landed on D-Day, <laughs> and he has a right to visit the set, and he's going to come as my guest. That was it. <laughs> so it was thanks, really, originally to Tom Hanks. Anyway, so Dad came, and it was pouring with rain. He had my Mac on, and... They under the umbrellas, and, and Janusz said, oh, sit in my chair. And Stephen said, no, sit here by me, Mr. Burwell. <laughs> so that was it. And I'd have to, I was running in to check Matt Damon, and, you know, because it's that scene at the end. So I was running in to check them before running back over the bridge to return to Video Village to be by my father to make certain that he wasn't saying anything embarrassing. <laughs> Which, of course, he did. And... <laughs> And the, the really great one was, and I'd stationed Catherine, who was one of my team. Um, I said, just hover in the background, just so that you can find out if, what Dad says, because he was a bit of a wild card, my dad, and had no filter, you know. So I'd go off and I was making up Matt, and he said, are you all right? You look a bit strange. I said, Dad's sitting by Steve, and he went, oh, I'll be fine. Get back there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So I came back and everyone was roaring with laughter. And I thought, oh, God. And Catherine, 
was standing behind and she was like, she said, I'll tell you later. And I went, oh God. Anyway, it transpired that my dad had been emboldened, you see, by the fact that Stephen was friendly and not frightening. And he'd said, now, Stephen, I've got to ask you a question. <laughs> I know that Lois is my daughter and I obviously love her, but I have to ask you seriously and honestly, is she any good at what she does? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, see, you know, no matter how successful you are in life, parents and children, those relationships are just the same everywhere you go. Exactly. As a very successful woman in the entertainment business, what would you want to say to other young women listening to the show? I would say don't put all your eggs in one basket. But if there's something that speaks to your heart, follow that. Follow that vision. And, and, if if you if something doesn't fit and it doesn't seem right, the likelihood is that it isn't. I, I I see so many people trying to force themselves into fitting what they think they should fit rather than discovering what it is and where they belong and what brings them happiness. So that the expectation of having a whole life rather than a sectioned life becomes possible. Mm. I, I I would say fine-tune it, you know, fine-tune what it is, what speaks to you. And it will change over a period of time. I mean, I'm not the same person I was when I was 20. I mean, I am. You know, still got the same flaws and all those things but and more wrinkles. But, you know, the, the, <laughs> but the thing is that I think what, what you discover as you go through life is, well, for myself, actually, maybe everyone's story is different. But I know what I've discovered. When I was younger, I thought I knew. The older I became the more I realize my lack of knowledge, in fact, bordering on ignorance, you know, and yet the increase in understanding. Mm. And there's something about that transition from believing you know to understanding that you don't know <laughs> that brings with it the things that you think are going to be important and the things that you worry about, you know, I mean, I, I, just purely in a vanity way. I mean, I'm just saying this because it's, I think people will resonate. So when you're young, you know, you think, oh God, do I look fat in this? Am I, you know, it's that kind of thing. Or I've got a spot, everyone's going to be looking at my spot. And as you get older, you think, I look to myself, I could have worn a bikini, I could have done those things, but I didn't. I was lacking it on the inside. So I would say, forgive yourself, forgive yourself those kinds of foibles and worries mm. because everyone has them and it can hold you back from what will really bring you happiness. Besides family and friends and career, what are you most passionate about in life today? Animals and the garden. Yeah. And actually, I tell you what I'm most passionate about. I'm passionate about when, when I leave this mortal coil, I would like to leave it a little bit better than it would have been had I not come here. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And I will say, I think you've already done that, <laughs> but I would love to see what else you're going to do the rest of your life, because I think you still have work yet to do. Oh, thank you. Yes, I hope so. Blooming well, I hope so. What was your favorite childhood book? The Secret Garden, F. Hogson Burnett. What was the first book that you read or movie you saw that made you cry? Well, I can tell you the story my parents would 
say, and then I can tell you my real experience. There are two <laughs> two different things. One, I was too okay. small. They took me to, there was a, an animation theatre that you could go into when you were waiting for a train. And we were somewhere, I mean, I want to say it's Piccadilly Circus, but I've got no idea if it was or not, because I was about two, two and a half. And they thought that we could go and see Bambi as my first cinema experience. And I screamed the place down. Had to be carried out, wailing and crying. How old were you? About two and a half. Two and a half, okay. That's a little early for Bambi. So I can't actually remember it. I know, exactly. So, but my parents, they were really bad parents when it came to that kind of um, adult supervision. <laughs> I always think of them, I always think of them. You know when you go on Netflix or whatever and it says, is it you or is it parent control? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I always think of my mum and dad. I mean, I was taken to see Paths of Glory when I was six, because <laughs> they didn't have babysitters. So I just went along. I mean, you know, I don't think it did me any harm, but I saw every Bond film, you know, the Blue Max, all those things. I mean, completely unsuitable for children, but anyway, didn't seem to harm me much. Uh, but the film I remember crying at, and forgive me if this is a long involved story and it's about a film that no one's ever seen. No, it's good. Um, but there was a film that Hayley Mills was in called Whistle Down the Wind, and it has um, Alan Bates and, in it too. And Hayley Mills was a young actress at the time, and she played a girl that lived in a, a farm somewhere in the Yorkshire Dales, and she had a little brother and a sister. And they went to Sunday school, and... At Sunday school, they were being taught the story of Christ and how he was persecuted and all those things. And Alan Bates plays a prisoner who's escaped from prison and they find him hiding in the barn like Jesus in the manger, right? So they start to take food to him from their parents. And, and, and Alan Bates at that point in, in his life such a beautiful man i mean very kind of christ-like beauty you know anyway so what happens in the end is obviously the police catch up with him and they take him off and of course being a child myself i believed the world of the children so i believed that he was jesus <laughs> <laughs> and that he was being taken away again uh -huh. because children believe other children and I sobbed. I sobbed all the way on, on, on the bus home with my cousin Susan and my mum. And it was a very popular musical score. And it made it into the charts and it'd be played on the radio all the time. And every time it played, I burst into tears and uncontrollably. And the only thing that made it better was that for my birthday, as I said, it was near Christmas, my parents bought me a pair of black, shiny Wellington boots, just like the ones Hayley Mills wore in the film. Aww. <laughs> do you have a picture of you in those boots? I do, actually, somewhere. <laughs> yes, you should send it to me. I'll include it in your, in your uh, promotional email for the, for the show. Oh, have a look. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that we're both uh, animal lovers. Do you have a favorite animal species? I've been thinking about that. I have, there's so many that I do love. I can't put one above the other. That's fair. So... I suppose I've got a natural affinity to cats because I grew up with cats. We didn't have horses or, or hens or anything else. We had a cat called Tibby. 
And are there any, uh, are these unique animals in the world that you would love to make a trip to go see or something that you're you know, like Jolene really wants to see a blue whale sometime in person in her life? Oh, that would be marvelous. I would like to see an African elephant in its homeland. I would like to see that. I'd like to go to Tiger Tops and watch the tigers. Did you watch Tiger King on Netflix? <laughs> oh, I couldn't. I couldn't make it through it. I know that sounds so rude of me. I'm so sorry. And I'm sure everyone else really enjoyed it. But I just I, I just found it rather repellent, actually, the whole idea. Well, no, it's it's the abuse of those animals was very hard to watch, honestly. Yeah, so. I can't do that. I really can't. Do you know, I have never even seen Old Yellow. Me neither. I can't, I can't watch any of those films, anything that's got Lassie in it. And when I first saw Alien, the, what I was worried about was Ginger Cat all the way through. <laughs> yeah. I didn't care less about the people. It was, where's the cat? Oh, my God. You know, what's that? Well, Lois, when you look back on your life, and I know you've talked about this a little bit in the podcast, how have your priorities changed from when you were 20, 30, 40, et cetera? My priorities have changed because I don't know if priorities have changed. I think the priorities have always been the same. But the ability to define, yes, this is this is right, and no, I don't want that, have become clearer, you know? Mm. And I, I think it's that. I think my understanding has improved. That's, I think that's one of the great benefits of age, too. Yeah, I, I do. And experience. I mean, it's just experience, isn't it? Well, they say experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, too right on that one. But yeah, I think, I think when I was 20, I mean, there's just... You're trying to find out who you are, aren't you? You're trying to find out who you are and, and where you fit and, and you want a career and you want to have a home life, or one assumes. Um, and it's sort of a, it's a time of promise, but it's also a time of great anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think I've left a lot of anxiety behind. That's great. When you're not off creating all this wonderful art for the world, what do you do with your spare time? What are your hobbies? Well, I do gardening. And I take care of the animals. Yeah. And actually see people, keep in touch with people. I mean, that's not really a hobby. I've, I've discovered during this, you know, COVID time, how very, very much we really all do need each other. I mean, you always know that. But when you can't embrace someone, I had a, a friend of mine was on, contacted me today, in fact, and isn't very well. And in normal times, I would make certain that I would go around there and, you know, make a cup of tea and sit and give them a hug or... Yeah. And I can't do that. That's tough. And and that's it's really horrible. I think that that's yeah. the worst part of all of this. Well, it's very hard to transition from that to my next question, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> do you have a favorite food? If I strip everything away, I've often wondered what I would have, you know, if, you know, I, I, I'm always kind of puzzled by the certain questions and certain sort of like moral maze things is what would you have for your last meal? Mm -hmm. And I think if you witter it down to that, that's what your favorite would probably be. So actually it would be two boiled eggs and toast. That's wonderful. I think most human beings, actually, when they whittle that down, end up surprising themselves with the most simple thing that they really love. That's great. I love eggs and toast. And I'd also like a little cheat in that just to have some honey there to put on the toast after the eggs. Well, one of my favorite questions to ask my guests is if you could sit for four hours with one person from all of human history, alive or dead, 
and that we have to exclude family members, Jesus, Mohammed, Moses, any kind of prophets, uh, who would you sit with? What would you drink? And what would you want to ask them? I'm going to be really naughty here. I'm going to go for one alive and one dead. Okay. I'll allow it. Thank you. So my alive would be the queen. And I would like, I don't know if it's true, but I believe that her favorite cocktail is Dubonnet and gin. So you would drink that? So that's what we would be drinking. And I would like to talk to her. I mean, I'm presuming that I can wave the wand and actually talk about you know, be in control of the conversation rather than sitting with the queen <laughs> and not being able to ask her. Yes, this is my this is my magic pub. She has taken her crown off and she's just a person talking. Exactly. With you. That's what that I was hoping for that. It's just Lois and Elizabeth. Exactly. Or Lo and Liz. Lo and Liz. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, what I would like to know is what she wanted to do with her life and how she'd perceive her life to be different had not the circumstances, which were against the odds, yeah. brought her to be in service of the nation. I mean, what fascinates me, actually, is here's someone who, it's not a career choice. It's a duty and a service. And there's something unique and rare about that. And I, the only other person I think would fall in that category, I mean, forgive me for, for saying that, but the only other person that, that I perceive to have a life that has chosen for them rather than choosing for themselves to some degree would be the Dalai Lama. And I think there's something fascinating about that. Mm. And I'd like to talk to her about how her real life is on the inside, her interior life. Yeah. So that would be fascinating. And actually on the same topic, but with the person who's departed, I would plump for Lincoln. Ah, interesting. It was a toss up for a moment or two between Winston Churchill and Lincoln. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go with Lincoln. That's cool. What do you, what's the first question you'd ask him? Low and Abe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I would ask him if he could have the, obviously I'm assuming that he would be able to know what's happening now. Yes. I would ask him what his thoughts and perceptions on the America we live in now. That is a great question. Wow. I could have just closed the whole podcast right on that. Thank you. That, that's awesome. In line with that, though, some people say that things in the world today are the worst they've ever been. Some people say that the world today is better than it's ever been. I fall in the camp of I think the world is better today than it's ever been, despite environmental concerns and politics and things like that, that the actual quality of a human's life is far better today than it's ever been. But I'm curious, what do you think? Where do you fall? I think it's probably a combination of the two. I think some things are worse. I definitely think, you know, civility is worse um, and good manners are failing mm. more, than, more than before. Um, but there again, if you look back at, you know, the baldy medieval time or, you know, the 16th century, that was a bit cut and thrust. I mean, I don't know. I think some things are better. Dentistry is better. <laughs> I wouldn't, well, you know... <laughs> I know that sounds like a flippant response, but it's true. You could die from a, from an infection in the gum. Yeah. There was no aspirin or antibiotics yeah, no. or anything back in the day. And, you know, other yeah. than ripping your teeth out and people having wooden teeth inserted into their gums if they wanted any teeth at all. And the life expectancy. Well, so we live longer, but do we live better? I guess that's, that's really the question. question. That's the real burning question. And I think it depends on how you can live. There are some people who have tragic lives painful lives and there isn't joy within it mm. and then others 
have happy, contented, or you know, more happy than not. So, I mean, I think it depends on where you live, who you are, and what your perception is. If, is the glass half full or half empty? I think people all the, all the way through every era have always thought it's the worst it's ever been or it's the best it's ever been. Yeah. There's always those two groups. And I don't think anyone really knows. You can't evaluate it all like that. What is your guilty TV pleasure? Any murder mystery, which is really sort of quite surprising, but I love them. I absolutely love them. I find them relaxing. <laughs> do you listen to podcasts in general or no? Because I was going to tell you something cool. I do. So the inspiration for my podcast actually came from the British Desert Island Discs. Oh, I love Desert Island Discs. That me is too. It's my favorite podcast. That's an ambition. You want to for me talk- too to be on that show. I want to be on Desert Island Discs so desperately. Me too. But I, I, I came became aware of that podcast. It became my favorite show. And then Jolene and I were talking about what I want to do with my life. I used to be a. I'm a licensed. DJ from high school and then all the other, you know, and all the other things coalesced. And I just thought, you know, I would love to do a podcast that means something to the world and talk to all these cool people I know about what is it. And it just evolved into what does it really mean to be human? Um, so that's kind of, but I haven't told anybody that, but you're the first person. Thank I told, you. That's, oh, that's a real yeah. privilege. I like that. And I just love that because the whole thing about desert Island discs is that because people are focusing on their choice, they reveal themselves inadvertently. Yes. And what's extraordinary are people's musical choices and how sometimes it doesn't reflect them at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So Lauren Laverne, or a producer from Desert Island Discs, if you hear this, Lois Burwell and Daniel Sherl would love to be on your show. Yeah. Uh, Lois, I'm curious, are you happy with the journey of life so far? Yes. Yes, I am. I mean, there are some things I'd like to have, I'd like to be slightly different. Um I would like to win the lottery. Me too. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure 99.9% of the listeners. But I'm always stunned when people say, oh, no, I, I, I'd be quite happy. My cousin Susan, actually, she says, I'd be quite happy with a million. I don't want the 55 because I wouldn't know what to do with it. Like, are you mad? There's so many things you can do in the world. Yeah. Think of all the things you could do and people. You said your cousin Susan? Well, if she's listening, cousin Susan, win the 50 million and hire me. I'll help you spend the other 49. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, I am happy with it. I mean, I, I've been lucky. I've just been so lucky, so fortunate. It's just remarkable. I don't know how or why it came about, but you know, just, just really so fortunate. So much to be grateful for. Gratitude is is an endless pleasure, actually. Mm-hmm. If you feel gratitude, it feeds itself. That's beautiful. If you could continue to live a healthy life, and that is the caveat, a healthy life, how long do you think you'd like to live? I don't want to be here without the people I love. I, and when more people that I know and love are on the other side, I'd like to go and join them. Mm. Are you afraid of dying? Well, I don't want to do it today. <laughs> um, and I'd be quite grateful if it wasn't until, you know, few years hence but um i've had a couple of sticky moments where you know the sword of damocles was was kind of potentially hovering above my head i'm sure most of the listeners have had that too whether it's you know a recall for a, a mammogram or you know something along those lines you know a bit of a scary moment and yeah and it makes you think um i hope i don't think anyone knows whether they're going to be good at dying or bad perfectly honest. I don't think you know until you're there. I don't have a fear of the concept of it. Um, I don't know if I'd be frightened in the moment. I hope not. I've 
I've been with, been privileged enough to be with several people, I should say, um, in their last moments. And it's extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinary event to participate in. Mm -hmm. And it is a privilege. And I hope that I'm like, I hope I'm like some of them. I hope I can do it without fear and I can let go gracefully. I don't want to be hanging on by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. I hope I can do that. Um, there was one gentleman and I don't know who he was. Uh, it was a bank holiday weekend. Um, I was living in England at the time. Sainsbury's it was actually. And I always used to say Sainsbury's is rather like life. I mean, you can say it's Albertsons, you could say it's, you know, Gelson's, you could... But... I was saying, and people here don't know, Sainsbury's is a grocery store. Yeah, so it's like Ralph's. I mean, you know, that one of those. Right, so in, in every day, uh, it's, like, it's like the Kroger grocery stores of the United States. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I always thought that life was like going around Sainsbury's because people pick things. You have someone who's, you know, obviously really worried about their finances and they're looking for the bargain. Um, then you have someone who's got a really meticulous list of what they need to do and what they get. And then you have someone who's just wandering around going, oh, I'll have that, you know. <laughs> so you have all those ranges. And, and once in Sainsbury's, um, a woman who was pregnant, water broke. I mean, literally. And over the bing bong, tannoy, there was, you know, the announcing system. There was assistance in aisle eight. <laughs> it's needed, you know. <laughs> and the ambulance turned up, she went off and, you know, all those things. Anyway. But it was a bank holiday weekend, and to get a trolley, a cart to go around the supermarket, you couldn't find one for love nor money normally. And there was just one by the side. They all seemed to go. And there was just one there. So I went, oh, good fortune. I've got a trolley around the supermarket. <laughs> so I go through the door, and a gentleman brushed against me, just literally kind of, you know, side hit me. But there was an expression on his face. So I abandoned the trolley, the, the cart, shopping cart, and followed him out because there was something about the expression on his face. And I went up to him. He was just by where the, you know, you collect your trolleys. And I went to touch him and he fell backwards and took me straight down on the ground with him sort of across my legs. And I looked for the security guard and said, call an ambulance. And he went off and... I had, I was holding the man, he was an older man, and he looked at me and he had real fear in his eyes. And I said, don't be frightened. There's nothing to be frightened of. You're going to be all right. It's all going to be all right. And he took a breath and then he didn't breathe again. Wow. And you don't know his name or anything about him to this day? No, because the, the ambulance came and I wasn't next of kin or anything. So the ambulance came, I made a statement but nothing was revealed to me. Oh, wow. Mm. That's incredibly powerful. That really is. And how do you think that experience changed you? I think it, I think it changed me because there was something so in the midst of life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and about his departure and in such a bizarre circumstance and place and in the arms of a stranger. I mean, but how, how wonderful that he actually had someone there to just tell him, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, yeah. this does transition very beautifully into one of the final questions I wanted to ask you about, which was you and I had spoken offline about having lost parents. And during our conversation, you had talked about living a balanced life. And I was hoping you would tell the listeners what we had talked about and 
your opinion on managing the different aspects of your life and the importance of those things to live a balanced life. I love what you said about it. Gosh, I don't know if I can be impressive a second time round. Um, <laughs> if not, I'll just copy and paste our original yeah, conversation. Copy right and paste. There you go. Um, <laughs> but I think it's very. I think it is very important to lead a balanced life, and you can't. It's, it's sometimes the quiet things. It's the small things that can give you the greatest joy. It's, and this sounds so contrite and ridiculous, but to me, it's very much the truth. You know, the smell of wet pavement after it's rained on a hot summer's day, or some just just looking at a flower, or looking at total stranger just smiling, mm -hmm. or an angle, or something. It, we're all connected. And I think, you know, there are some things in life that films I could have taken, jobs I could have done. But when my father became unwell, you know, I just, I, I didn't work. I couldn't, I didn't have the same drive or commitment. I, I wanted to be with him and I wanted his ending whenever it came to be as pleasant as possible to be as enriched as possible. And everything else fell to one side. Mm -hmm, totally. And I've never regretted, I've never regretted saying no. I've often regretted saying yes, because it's harder to make the decision to say no for me. Yeah. Um, so you have to consider what it is you're saying. We're saying yes is relatively positive and an easy thing to do. Yeah, Jolene, Jolene talks about when you say no to something, her fear of saying no is the future possibility she could be turning down instead of... But I, th <clears throat> I think the important thing to remember in that is that when you sometimes... Sometimes when you say no to something else, you're saying yes to yourself, and that is a very important thing to do. Exactly. I completely agree with you. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's why... I've often regretted saying yes, but I haven't regretted saying no. And I should give her credit that that's Jolene's quote, not mine, but yeah. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, if you could go back in time, what do you think you would say to 20-year-old Lois? Oh, I'd say be brave, be bolder. Be brave, be bolder. Lois Burwell, what do you think is the purpose of art? Well, I think it's, it's to transform. It's to lift us. It's to make us think is to make us better than we are. What does success in life look like to you? Oh, not having missed out on the big stuff. And that's not necessarily career. Oh, no. No, 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 no. It's the, it's the whole of life. I mean, I, there's, there's something about having... I mean, I'm not certain what a successful career really is, to be completely <laughs> honest. I mean, I, I know what a successful life feels like. Well, you know, it's funny. In America, I feel like there's this obsession that... And in our industry, let's just say, for example, there could be a director out there who has 20 really famous feature films, but in real life, they're a terrible person. They treat people badly. They're not healthy. They don't have a healthy relationship. They don't take time to smell the flowers and whatever, and they end up dying miserable and alone. Yeah. No matter how many great movies they may have made, that's not a successful life to me. They've missed the point. Exactly. I mean, I, I've, the one thing I know that is that you will always regret is having a life that's just a list of credits. There's so much more to life than that. And you can have both. You can actually have both, you can do both. But what that means is you have to be prepared to say, no, I'm not doing this film. 
I am going to be here for X. Yeah. I mean, I turned down, <laughs> turned down a film once. This is absolutely true. I turned down a film once because it wasn't even my dog. But um, Bubba, who was a lab, who was, lived at the place where the, the stables, where the horses were, uh, my horses were, um, he, through a very depressing time, immediately after my father passed away, it was really hard and I felt hollow and empty. And yet every day he would just by his, you know, funny face and his waggly tail or the silly things he'd do, I would smile. He gave me where people would, you know, want to console you. Or, but Bubba gave me a joy, a, a, a heart singing joy hmm. during a very dark time. And when I knew that Bubba had become... It was a matter of time. He had cancer. You know, we were doing pain control. So it was right. But it was a matter of time. And I was offered a job away. I turned it down. And I said, I'm sorry. I didn't say it was for a dog. Because um, <laughs> I didn't think that would have gone down well. But I said, you know, there's a friend of mine who's terminally ill. And I want to be with him in his last moment. Good for you. I think that's wonderful. So, and I would have made the same call, to be yeah. honest with you. And, mm. yeah, it was, uh, I've never regretted that. Well, speaking of animals, what's your spirit animal? Well, I'm not certain. I, there was a shaman who told me that I had, you know, on the animal medicine wheel, said at the core of it was um, a snake. Was, And I thought, mm, I don't think I quite like that. I'm not, <laughs> I don't like snakes because they're, they're really, you know, underestimated in their beauty um, and how they feel. Um, but... I didn't, but he said it was the ability to transform. Hmm. And that's what it symbolizes, transformation as well as feminine energy. So I thought, oh, I could come to terms with that. So I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, what I'd really like is something like a snow leopard. Well, I'm going to just say your, your spirit animal is a snow leopard then. Lois the snow leopard. That's cool. Thank you. The last thing we do on the podcast is a little fun game I have called 299 Philosophical and Life Questions with Moonbird. I have a list of 299 questions I've collected from friends and family on the internet. And you get to pick two numbers and I'm going to randomly, I'm going to ask you those random questions. What, what two numbers would you like to choose today? Well, I'm going to go for 37. Okay. And what's the other one? Did you say you got 200? 299. <gasps> Oh, I'm going to go for the 299th. All right. That's fantastic. So 37 and 299. Number 37, when was the last time you broke someone's heart? Oh, golly. I don't really know. Um, I think in an obvious way, it would have been in the 90s. No, early 90s. Okay. Number 299. I won't ask you to explain who or what. That's no. okay. <laughs> no number 299 i think this is the first time this question's been on the show if i if i remember correctly what would your pet say about you if we asked for a reference oh she doesn't feed me enough she doesn't <laughs> feed me enough she's sometimes late with the food you know occasionally when it's on time it's all right i suppose but i think i deserve better <laughs> i think that's what they'd say um but if they were given a positive reference I think they'd probably say she's not too bad. <laughs> Fair enough. Lois, I can't thank you enough for being here. You're such an awesome human being, and it's such a pleasure to talk with you. I can't wait to see what other cool stuff that you're a part of in the future. And please give all the animals a big squeeze and have a great day. Bless you and you, and great success with this. Thank you so much. 
Friends and listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the wonderful programs they offer, visit them at oscars.org. That's O-S-C-A-R-S dot O-R-G. And while you're surfing the web, if you like what you hear on this show, please show your support at patreon.com forward slash moonbird. The link is in all the show notes and the website and the bio and Instagram and all over the world. And hey, 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 if you'd like even more Moonbird in your life, then head on over to memoriesofamoonbird.com or visit me anywhere on social media at Memories of a Moonbird. Stay safe, everybody. Oh.